0: welcome to the podcast whiskey and a map stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them i'm your host michael reinhardt it has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey a desire to go and see the world's wild places you're invited to pull up a chair pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. James Michael Dorsey is an award-winning author, cetacean specialist, photographer, and lecturer who has traveled extensively through 56 countries. When he is not on the water interacting with whales, he visits remote tribal cultures to write personal narratives about his travels. He is a retired fellow of the Explorers Club and a member emeritus of the Adventurers Club of Los Angeles. The term I think best suits him is cultural explorer. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you back. You're actually our first repeat guest, and it's quite fitting since I really enjoyed the stories that you told us at the last episode. A lot of people did. So welcome back.
1: It's good to be back. It's It's been three years, and uh, yeah, there's a
0: lot of new stories to be told, so I'm very happy to be here again. Yeah, we're anxious to hear them. But before we start, as is the custom here, do you have a good drinking story for us?
1: <laughs> oh, there's always a drinking story. Um, one that, that does come to mind took place in... Um, I'm not sure if it was Thailand or Laos. I was right near the border. I had taken a small boat up the Mekong because I'd heard about this reclusive uh, uh, moonshiner I wanted to meet. And I found him out in the jungle and he had quite an apparatus built there. He had a massive operation going and he was employing local tribes people to collect scorpions and snakes and what have you because they make this stuff called cobra whiskey and they put these dead insects inside the bottle and the stuff goes crazy. The tourists buy it like crazy. So I was helping this fellow fill these empty bottles with scorpions and snakes and spiders and what have you. And he kept plying me with his moonshine. And uh, he had this pet monkey that was on a, a platform sitting right behind us. And every time he would give me a shot of this moonshine, he would fill this little thimble of the monkeys with his moonshine. And the monkey was drinking this stuff like it was water. I'd never seen anything like that. The monkey got really kind of wasted, as I did and didn't even realize it. And it turned out into a a, a full-scale drinking contest, me trying to match the monkey shot for shot. And I was just about ready to call it quits, because this is like a four-pound monkey, and he's out drinking me. When all of a sudden, it was like a, a, a Sam Peckinpah Western, when he falls over in slow motion, bounces. And passed out drunk, which was just a few seconds before I would have done the same thing. I guess I, I, am not proud of it, but I was able to outdrink a four pound monkey.
0: Well, I imagine that monkey had a bit more practice with that particular moon sign. Uh, he he was very used to it.
1: Yeah, so uh,
0: that was a massive
1: amount of stuff he consumed that day. What did it taste like? Very bitter. That's that's my memory of it. I I basically fell asleep in the boat on the way back to my hotel. And uh, when I got there, I found out that my, I was missing $20, and I had two bottles of Cobra whiskey in my bag. So that was the exchange the fellow made while I was under my cups.
0: Well, maybe just a little bit to uh, take the edge off in the next morning.
1: Yeah, hair of the dog, as it were.
0: It's funny you mentioned uh, moonshine. One of my favorite pictures in our f- family albums is a picture of my great-grandfather. He's in the mountains of Tennessee, dressed in his Sunday best. And he's out in the woods. You can clearly see that. And he's standing next to a still. Apparently, he was so proud of it, uh, being a moonshiner, but he was so proud of his still. He, he got somebody to come out there and take his photograph way back in the day, uh, <laughs> posing with his still. So. I guess I can, I can relate a little bit with that from a family aspect.
1: Yeah, that's great history
0: now. I understand that she had some interesting experiences in China. Would you like to share those with us? Yes, I went into
1: northwestern China, Xinjiang province to be exact. This is the homeland of the Uyghur people who have been in the news lately. When I went there, Uh, an open rebellion had just started against the ruling Han majority because most of the Uyghurs are Muslims and uh, religion is poison in China. And so the Chinese government had raised the exit fees for a visa to make the Hajj to Mecca from a couple hundred dollars to several thousand, which made it impossible for most of the Uyghurs to make the Hajj. So there was an armed rebellion that started over 10 years ago, and I went not long after that to see some of this. It kind of quieted down for a while. Lately, just last week, I've been getting reports from friends of mine over there that they're just going door to door, and, and people are disappearing into trucks at night, never to be seen again. So it sounds like a full-scale genocide is going on at this point. But at the time I went there... I, I was more interested in, in other things besides the Uyghurs. Uh, northwestern China is a land ruled by llamas and superstition and, and spirits. I went into this national park way up in the mountains, in the Altai Mountains. This is a point where Russia, Afghanistan, Mongolia, and China all come together at one point. And it's primarily Mongol people up there. Uh, I got to work with a Mongol eagle hunter, and this is when I learned that the the local people claimed that this was the last stronghold of Genghis Khan before he rode west to conquer Europe. So I went up into the mountains, quite high up, and I was traveling with another friend of mine. We got to this alpine meadow, as the best guy could call it. We were probably like 10,000 feet up in this giant valley of boulders. And we started finding these hand-carved monoliths. Some of them were 10, 15 feet tall. Some of them looked like men. Some had faces. There were dozens and dozens of these monoliths. And they covered several miles of this valley. So we met a local lama who told us that Genghis Khan, whose name was Temujin, I believe. I can't recall it right offhand now. He himself was a shaman. And he conducted religious ceremonies at this place. And he is the one who had these monoliths carved and erected. And apparently very few people know they're there. I took a lot of photographs and I published a couple stories about these. But uh, the local people all swear that that was where Khan kept his army quartered during the winter before he rode west to conquer Europe. And they also claimed that... uh, Since they would ride all day without stopping, they would put meat under their saddles to tenderize it while they rode. And that was the uh, beginning of steak tartare. Now, how much of that is true, I have no idea. But I love these little stories you pick up along the way from local people. So yeah, that was in Xinjiang province. And from there we went on to to see the Uyghurs and I, I witnessed some of the armed rebellion going on there and it was kind of bloody even back then. It's it's a lot worse now, I understand.
0: Well before we move to the Uyghurs, tell me about the lamas. These are holy men there? Yeah, Buddhists.
1: They uh there are shrines everywhere, uh animus shrines, piles of rocks with, with wood stuck in them and prayer flags and what have you. And uh, Genghis Khan was considered a a shaman who followed tengrism, which is a form of animism. It involves ancestor worship and that sort of thing. Tengrism is still alive in the Altai Mountains of western China. If you go into any home there, most of the people live in yurts. There's also a lot of old log cabins left by Russian loggers that the Uyghurs have moved into. If you go into these homes, they're full of fetishes and uh, talismans to ward off evil. And they all have a portrait of Genghis Khan hanging on the wall with white kata flags draped around them. He's, he's a semi-deity in that area to this day. It, it's a combination of, of Lamaism and uh, mountain superstition and all these different religious beliefs thrown into one. The local people would wear a chicken leg around their neck uh, to ward off evil spirits. If I went into the tiny little town, the area was called Kanas. It's a Chinese national park way up in the mountains. And the little town was called Himu. And if you go into any of the stores, you would find animal parts for sale for potions and spells and magic and what have you. It was uh, very surreal. In fact, while I was there, I, I had no idea until it happened. There was a full solar eclipse. And the only reason I knew it was happening was because I heard people screaming. And they were falling to the ground and covering their heads. Uh, this, this is such a, a rural area. They had no idea of what was going on or the science behind it. And, and I was witnessing this primal fear from a, a natural act of, of nature. It
0: was pretty amazing to see. Fascinating. A glimpse into a culture that's thousands of years old and still practicing a lot of the uh, the old traditions. Yeah.
1: And in fact, there was a, a, a Chinese military base there. It was basically unoccupied except for a handful of guys who were very lethargic pulling guard duty. And I actually slept in that barracks one night and I was wearing a, a Chinese army officer's overcoat when the eclipse happened and I ran outside in that overcoat to see what was going on, not thinking I could be in real big trouble here impersonating a Chinese soldier. And I actually got saluted by one guard before he ran off. So I got out of that
0: coat real quick when I realized what I was doing. And you don't want to be conscripted? Not 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 army, no. And how long were you in that area?
1: About three weeks. uh, I started... Actually, in Beijing during the Olympics, thinking I could slip into the country uh, unnoticed, which was a total misnomer. Uh, You are you can travel independently in China, not on a tour, but you will have a government overseer following you every step of the way. It's inevitable because it is a police state, and I I saw so many people following me around. Uh, I guess they would pass me off as I would go from one city to another and someone would always pick up my tail and and be following me. Yeah, it's, it's just the way it is. But anyway, I witnessed tens of thousands of homeless people that were herded out of Beijing so they would not be seen on camera during the Olympic Games. China did not want the world to see that. And an interesting fact was that at night when I would be in a hotel, I was trying to watch some of the Olympics. And, uh, they would broadcast chinese athletes but as soon as any other athlete from another country was competing they would switch the uh, switch over to martial music and show the flag they would not show international competition you know, within the country
0: interesting yeah when you went to the western part of china did you have an interest in following the trail of genghis khan
1: not particularly no nobody knows exactly where he was, you know, or where he is buried to this day. I know there's an expedition using LIDAR right now, ground penetrating radar, who believes they may have discovered a, a tomb. I don't know if it's actually his or not. But the story was that once he died, uh, thousands of horsemen rode over the grave so there would be no markings left, and then they were executed themselves. So no one could tell where he was buried, because uh, uh, someone would dig up the body, I'm sure if they knew where he was but that was all one big trip so you, i started in beijing i took a train across the taklamakan desert uh, up into a then into the altai mountains that's where i learned about the khan stronghold and then ended up right over near the border uh, in kashgar where the Uyghurs were
0: you well, tell again. us about kashgar
1: oh it's a, it was a big modern city The hotel I ended up in, I found out later, was actually a a former brothel at at the old Soviet embassy. Uh, All the rooms were pink and green inside, and there were doilies and and, uh, lace curtains. Every night about 10 o'clock, the the telephone in the room would ring, and this female voice would ask if there was anything I needed that night. And uh, I always politely declined every offer. There were all these women... Uh, I was the only one staying in this huge building at the time. I don't know if it was the commercial hotel or if they were just uh, putting me up there because I was locked in at night. I couldn't go anywhere. And there were all these young women everywhere that I had assumed were prostitutes when the Soviet embassy was there. And now they were staying on as maids at this so-called hotel. had nowhere else to go or no other way to make a living. And that's where you came in
0: contact with the Uyghurs?
1: Yeah, I was traveling with a friend, and he had contacts. He had somebody in Kashgar that we looked up. I have stayed in touch with this person over the years, and he's the one that's been supplying me with all this information. The very little news about all this goes to the outside world. And I, I know a number of journalists that have been beaten up and imprisoned for reporting on the story of what's going on with the Uyghurs there.
0: When you were there, did you get to meet some of the Uyghurs?
1: Quite a few, yes. I, I spoke with a lot of them. I drank coffee with a lot of them. And I discovered that they're crazy about bagels. They have these uh, ovens. They sink down, these clay ovens that are sunk into the earth. Why, every morning in these remote villages, you could smell these fresh-baked bagels, and people are lined up for them. It, um, it, was, it was like being at a New York deli in the middle of nowhere. What's their ethnic background and their history? Mongolia is is where a lot of them are from. They are more or less the culture is Eastern Europe. They're primarily Muslim. The men wear very long beards, and they're identified by these tiny little four-cornered hats they wear. The women, they don't cover their faces, but they wear headscarves. Very conservative people. They keep to themselves because they've been looked down upon as second-class citizens for so long. And it's virtually impossible for them to emigrate out of the country. They can't get any exit visas. China treats its minorities as less than human. And there are many minorities such as this. It's just that the Uyghurs are the the most populous. There are estimated 90,000 of them in the Xinjiang province where I was. And they're the ones that happen to catch all the news. Uh, but there are scores of other minorities in China that have no official status. They, they're they not allowed to work. They don't have a, any kind of identification. They're not allowed to have children. It's it's uh, it's a story the world will probably never hear all of. But it, it is a total police state that most people are not aware of.
0: And is the the crackdown has just been over the decades to just to keep that large Muslim population down?
1: Yes, yes.
0: I mean, the, you can
1: trace this back to Mao Zedong, who said religion is poison. And then look what they did when they took over Tibet you know, and destroyed thousands of years of, of religion there and all the monasteries and slaughtered monks. So
0: China has a brutal history of suppressing religion in all of its forms. Sad, 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 sad situation. And maybe this is a good place to talk about healers, given what we're talking about. I understand that you ran into uh, some interesting people in Peru. Yeah,
1: they're called curanderos, uh, those who cure. Most of them are women uh, from the mountains. Uh, There were several markets they call witches markets. Uh, On the one I went to, it was in a big park on the outskirts of Lima. They had this gigantic circus-like tent. And inside, each woman, each had, uh, curandera the female, had a stall, just like an arts and crafts center. They had their own stall with a big banner. They had their websites, their phone numbers, and all this stuff on it. And it had their specialties. Uh, it would say, I, I use eggs. I use coca leaves. I use a kakui, which is a, a guinea pig. They claim to heal using these objects, and creatures. Uh, for example, this one lady I was, I was talking to, uh, she had stomach problems. She laid down on a table, and the, the corandera started talking to her, and she picked up a guinea pig, a live guinea pig, and she started running it up and down the woman's body like a TSA screener would use a wand at an airport, just like that had the woman roll over, went over her backside with this guinea pig. Then she held the guinea pig up to her ear like she was talking to it and listening to it. And she told the woman that she had cancer, but the pig had told her it would be all right and it was going to take care of it. And then she took the pig and she put it on the woman's stomach and she held it there for several seconds. And then when she took the pig away, she held it up to her ear again like they were talking And she told the lady, you're going to be fine. And the lady got up, paid her, thanked her, and walked out. And I saw dozens and dozens of people doing similar things. Uh, This is all an act of faith. It It is so ingrained in their culture there, and they believe in these healers. So whether they're actually healing anything, they're certainly making people believe that they are, or people want to believe that they are. But this is a weekly event where they come out of the mountains and they gather in these these witches' markets. They're called.
0: You were, you were going to say, "Well, I was going to say or ask if you ever witnessed anything actually happen as a result of going to these healers." The only thing I saw that really struck me: this one fellow
1: had a compound fracture in his leg; the bone was sticking through it, and this curandera. Took uh, an egg, put it in a bowl, put it underneath the guy's table, and then she took coca leaves and put them on top of the bone that was protruding from his leg. She said a few incantations, and the fellow got up and walked out on that broken leg. Now, all of these women also have uh, merchandise. They, they sell potions, they sell amulets, they sell trinkets, and you can buy prepackaged packaged uh, potions that make somebody fall in love with you or put a curse on people. It, it's an amazing industry that's going on with the mountain people
0: there. And it's amazing just the effect of belief and how that, I mean, how the mind controls the body. Yes.
1: And if you think about it, most of Modern medicine originated in in the rainforests uh, way back when. Everything that we call medicine today came from a natural origin in the earth. So there is a lot more to this than we certainly understand here in the West.
0: Yeah. You know, you wonder what still is out there in those rainforests, what cures that are there that remain to be found, uh, hopefully before it gets uh, devastated by just all the loggers coming in decimating those rainforests
1: it's been going on so long i i'm not optimistic for the long-term future of our planet i'm sorry but i've I've seen too much of it Uh, i I believe we may have passed the tipping point but i hope not continue on a happier note here (laughs)
0: let's talk about papua new guinea
1: yes fascinating tell us about that oh well I did not know at first that there are close to a thousand different tribal cultures in Papua, more than 800 different languages, and countless thousands of dialects, which is the most of any country on earth. So if you talk about diversity, Papua New Guinea is the place. There's a long history there of, of uh, cannibalism that mostly ended a couple of generations ago. but. Out of all these hundreds of highland tribes, there was one in particular. They were called the Asaro, A-S-A-R-O. The world knows them as the Mud Men. And the story, as I was told by several of them, was that about two to 300 years ago, the Asaro were very quiet, peace-loving people who kept to themselves one of the least warlike tribes in all of Papua. And they were regularly being raided by stronger tribes who would take their women and their pigs, not necessarily in that order, but those are the two main valuable things in that area. At one point, a great many of the Asaro had been slaughtered, and the remainder fled into this local river, which was full of this gray mud. And their attackers pursued them and stopped when they got to the river, and the Asaro didn't know why they weren't being slaughtered. The attackers left and the Osaro finally figured out that they had been covered in mud hiding down in the river and they blended right in with, with the mud. They, they couldn't be seen. And so they decided to capitalize on this. They started making masks out of whatever detritus they could find, uh, cardboard, wood, tree branches, and they made masks to cover their faces And they decided they were going to take their retribution for these raids, finally, because now they thought they were invisible, since they were covered with this magic mud from the river. And that night, they went and they raided the attackers who had attacked them the previous night, and those people fled, and the story was that they thought they were witnessing the ghosts of the people they had killed and come back to revenge them. And that was the origin story of the mud men. Now, to this day, they have a reputation as being fierce warriors, when in fact, they are some of the friendliest people on the island. There are still very warlike tribes in the highlands, but the Asaro are not among them. They have almost totally turned commercial now, putting on exhibits of their how, how they prepare themselves, how they coat themselves with mud, and from those original funky little masks they made out of nothing, they now wear these elaborate, big uh, sun-baked headpieces that weigh 20 to 40 pounds each. And they, they cover your entire head. They're massive masks. They put on ceremonies for people. They do not dance per se, but they, they pantomime their stories in slow motion, and that's their trademark. And in 1957, the government in an attempt to stop all these spearing and raiding parties between cultures came up with something they called a sing sing. And the first one was in 57 where it was basically a woodstock for native people. There's a city called Garoka where there's this giant open field and every year, tens of thousands of the highland people come down there in their indigenous dress and they have a three day festival that is, they have done that to take the place of the old spearing and raiding parties. Now they come together for music and singing and dancing. But at that first festival back in 57, they didn't tell people that the mudmen were coming. And the mudmen in came into town, two and three hundred strong in full regalia with their big masks on and caused mass panic. People fled the city and there were riots because they thought these ghosts were invading them. Since then, they've come to be the rock stars of Papua New Guinea. Everybody goes there wants to see the Mud Men now. They are not warriors by any stretch of the imagination, although they act like they are and want you to think that they are. They all carry weapons around, but you couldn't meet nicer people. And if you look closely, you see they're all wearing Timex and they got their Ray-Bans on. And so they've assimilated into the modern world quite a bit for people whose fathers and certainly grandfathers were still headhunters.
0: When you were there, did they tell you stories of their ancestors? And Yeah, uh, I
1: went before the actual festival. I was there for four or five days before that, and I had a private guide that I had, had met elsewhere. And he took me into a lot of these remote villages where they were getting ready for the big ceremonies. So I got to see a lot of things the general public doesn't. And they took me into the forest to some shrines where they had skulls stacked up and they had bones of victims from back when and talismans and fetishes hanging in the forest and that left by their ancestors. And so I saw a lot of the old stuff that they don't show off anymore because the government certainly doesn't want to promote the image of headhunting.
0: Yeah. Did they explain to you why their ancestors engaged in headhunting, what it meant to them? Not in any great depth. It was
1: basically like uh, they've also been accused of cannibalism because when you defeat an enemy in battle, you cut off a tiny piece of flesh and eat it to take the power from that person into yourself. And that was the same concept with with taking someone's head. You were taking their power from them. And a lot of the older people still have skulls stashed in their huts uh, that were taken by their ancestors,
0: and they use them for various ceremonies. But I was not privy to any of that. It must still be a special talisman for them. They'll still have special meaning if they've they're still keeping these skulls and bones. Still oh, yeah. keeping them in secret. Shrines. I know that they they still have ceremonies deep in the jungle that
1: people are not going to see. I mean, not unless you're immersing yourself in the culture. And I usually don't have enough time to do that. Even though I visit a lot of these remote tribes, I'm still just barely touching the surface for their their histories. These are oral societies. They all don't have written languages. So, Unless you can find somebody willing to sit down and talk to you for days on end, you're not going to get much more than a superficial look at everything.
0: And, of course, you'd have to get a uh, good rapport with the locals to where they would trust you to, to tell you that. Basically, fascinating yep. to see.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's anthropology. You have to immerse yourself in the culture and live with them to, to get the whole story and uh, i i am not an anthropologist by any means i'm
0: i'm just someone who's curious about how the rest of the world lives now farther back in papua new guinea uh, the tribes are they still at war with each other some of them are they still have raiding parties yes what type of weapons are they using are they using modern weapons or no no ones? no these are
1: spears and uh, arrows they all raise cassowaries these giant vicious birds some of the largest birds on earth that's a delicacy and uh, they will raid a village to take a cassowary Uh, they will raid to take a pig or they'll raid to take a woman and not necessarily in that order but uh, women are not held in great respect in the highlands there
0: yeah i was uh, interviewing matthew merritt who is a british explorer he was in Australia told us about or described those casseraries. It sounds like a velociraptor with the, the claws and how mean they are. Their feet are the size of both of my fists
1: with vicious claws, and they will disembowel you if they can. Yes. They're an amazing animal, and I I saw some of them six feet tall.
0: Did you see any other quick.
1: unusual animals? Gigantic pigs, five- and 600-pound pigs. I've never seen so many birds. And uh, if you would stop along the way at some of these little inns, they have like outdoor coffee shops. They would put out displays of chopped up fruit just to attract the birds for all the f- followers, all the photographers there. There'd be so many different colored birds everywhere. Thousands and thousands of colorful birds. That was most of the wildlife that I saw. By avocation, you are a naturalist, are you not? I am. I've had parallel careers, uh, visiting remote tribal cultures for a couple of decades and all during that time. I've also worked as a cetacean naturalist. My specialties are whales, dolphins, porpoises, pinnipeds, and uh, I've had years of classwork training. I've worked on whale boats all over Southern California and the Central California coast. And I worked for 22 years in the gray whale nursery of San Ignacio Lagoon in Baja, Mexico. And in fact, next May, I have a book being published uh, that is a memoir of those 22 years, and it's called The Lagoon. It is all about the natural history of Baja, the indigenous people of Baja, and this mystical connection between the people and the whales that has existed to this day for 10,000 years. There's three great birth lagoons in Mexico of the gray whale. And these are the only place on earth where wild animals in their natural habitat routinely seek out human contact. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. I've never met anyone who could contradict it. I tell people, if you can come up with, with something to prove that wrong, please let me know because people are shocked when they hear that. But this happens nowhere else. These 40-ton wild animals Come up to people because they
0: want to be touched and they want to be petted. And it only happens in this lagoon. Okay, you've got to tell us more about that because that is pretty fascinating. It
1: is. The season, uh, the, the whales migrate from the Chukchi and Bering Sea north of Alaska down to the southern tip of Baja. There's about 20, roughly 20,000 gray whales on the eastern stock, as it's called here on the Rim of Fire. Of those, maybe 3,000 migrate all the way down to Mexico. The rest are spread out all along the western coast of the Americas. A lot of them have their babies along the way. Some are born when they hit the lagoon. But uh, mothers will put the babies on their stomach and bring them up to the boats to be petted. They'll put them on their backs. They'll hold them up on their pectoral fins. And the mothers like to have their tongue scratched and their baleen stroked, and they're seeking contact, they're seeking touch. And I I work with a lot of people who are involved with interspecies communication, and I believe it's just a matter of time before we are able to actually have conversations with these creatures, because we are slowly figuring out how they communicate, And I think we are the inferior ones that we haven't figured out how to actually enter their world more effectively yet. But I think it's coming. They are smarter than anyone can believe.
0: Fascinating. Any idea how that connection between people and those whales may have started?
1: I don't know how
0: it started, but
1: we know it's been there that long because uh, I used to also guide people up into the San Francisco Mountains in central Baja, and there are some 200 painted caves up there. And inside these caves, there are images, carbon dated 8 to 10,000 years old, of whales, gray whales, anatomically correctly rendered we're talking about 20 miles away from the water up in a mountain. So people 10,000 years ago, either the water level was that high, which is, I don't believe it was, or these people traveled many, many miles in order to have religious ceremonies regarding these animals' images they were putting on the walls of these caves. So they've been connected to whales for at least 10,000 years. And today people come from all over the world to these lagoons to see these whales because the same whale will not interact with people on the open ocean it will not approach a boat
0: but in that lagoon they will come right up to you like a big puppy the whale populations we've always been concerned about the diminishing numbers how are they doing right now i can speak to the gray whales
1: there's anywhere from 18 to 22,000 of them in the current stock the Asian stock is extinct because of pollution. The Atlantic stock went extinct in the last century. Uh, where we are on the Western Americas, we have a healthy stock of gray whales, close to 20,000, that seems to hold its own every year. Although they're being heavily affected by climate change and, and water temperatures, and that, that affects feeding habits and all that other stuff so it's it's a big domino effect
0: and the gray whales are feeling it at this point but they're holding their own you mentioned about the interaction between people and animals and do you see that or are you aware of that anywhere else besides the whales that you've seen not at that level no I've often been accused
1: of anthropomorphism, uh, if I pronounce that correctly, assigning human traits to animals because to me, all creatures are sentient beings. Uh, there is a worldwide movement now, and many nations are officially declaring all animals to be sentient beings, meaning they have feelings and thought process equal to us. Um, there is, there is a uh, marine scientist working out of Loyola, Marymount in Los Angeles who is saying that to kill a whale is the equivalent of killing a human being because they are non-human persons. And this, this whole idea of intelligent animal life is catching on worldwide. And uh, countries that are traditionally whaling nations, the most, the most recent one would be uh, uh, Norway. They're even stopping commercial whaling next year because they're recognizing there's no need to kill animals that are this intelligent. There are animals for food source, and there are other animals that are highly more evolved than that, that should not be killed.
0: The title of the book, do you have a firm title or a working title?
1: It is called The Lagoon Encounters with the Gray Whales of San Ignacio. It will be published in May by Diversion Books, and you can find information on my website, which is just jamesdorsey.com, and hopefully get invited back for another podcast when the book is available. So I'd love to just talk about that one afternoon.
0: Oh, definitely. You have really piqued my interest about this interaction between whales and people, and especially how, how long it's been going on down in in Mexico. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a story there to be told. There's a great book out right
1: now called, uh, I can't think of the author, but the book is called How to Speak Whale. And it is all about interspecies communication and how we are learning to decode the sounds these animals make and how we are taking the first baby steps in really communicating with... It's going to happen at some point.
0: As an aside... How old, how far back do whale species go in the fossil record? I mean, I believe they predate humans by quite a bit.
1: Uh, about 190 million years. Uh, they Just came after bit. the dinosaurs. A lot of people think whales are dinosaurs. They're not. They came much later. But there are skeletons left behind called archaeocetes, which show the progression of the animal from a land-based to a water-based animal. Originally, the early whales had uh, nostrils on the front of their head, just like you and I do. And if you look at these uh, skeletons progressing over the centuries in museums, you can see how the the nostrils slowly worked their way to the back of the head, where they became a blowhole, a breathing hole, as is used today. And it's interesting that toothed whales have a single blowhole, and baleen whales have a double blowhole. But they are all warm-blooded mammals who breathe there, just like we do.
0: And can you imagine if we do, in fact, begin to understand the level of intelligence of these marine creatures, of these whales, that that intelligence may predate human beings by millions and millions of years?
1: It absolutely could. They may be far more involved than we are. They're just different and we just don't know how to communicate with them at this point. But as far as I'm concerned, they are among the smartest creatures on earth. You have to put them right up there with elephants and octopus. Most people are surprised. Yeah, by two others. Octopus can solve problems and they have a th- thought process that is amazing.
0: Yeah, we have so much to learn. Jim, this has been a fascinating conversation and you've really piqued our interest regarding the whales and your work with them so i i hope that we can get you back on the podcast once the book's back because i've got a lot of questions i'm sure a lot of our audience would uh, would really be interested in what you what you know and what you see down there i'd be very happy to come back uh we will stay in touch and uh yeah
1: and it's been good to to be able to talk to people again about this it's uh COVID has been a very tough time for a lot of people, and it's good to be able to
0: communicate with so many people again. Absolutely. Well, perfect. All right, Jim, till we see you again, take care. Thank you, Michael. It was my pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist photos videos and articles of interesting people mysterious places and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world